0: John O'Duncan Duncan here. As you're aware, I do a weekly podcast with my good friend Big Al called the Progressive Rugby League Podcast. And you know the drill. I give a long-winded reflection, Big Al gets emotional about the Tigers, we sing about French Canadian Rugby League, and then we go home to get on with the rest of our lives for the week. And that format seems to work well for us. But sometimes we want to go a little deeper, and that's where our Progressive Rugby League book clubs come in. The idea for the book clubs came about when we came across a second-hand copy of The Forbidden Game by Mike Rylance. We were shocked and fascinated by what we read, and we immediately knew we had to dedicate a whole show to this incredible book that chronicled the banning of rugby league in France during World War II. In stunning news for fans of international rugby league history, Mike released his follow-up, The Struggle and the Daring, in 2018. It's another thoroughly researched and evocative read, when we locked in our Rugby League study tour itinerary, we kept a day loose on the off chance we could meet up with Mike to interview him for the show. The stars aligned and he kindly obliged. So in late July, on a sweltering summer's day, Big Al and I hit the road to Wakefield. And here's the result. It's Progressive Rugby League Book Club, The Struggle in the Dairy
1: Welcome to a very special edition of the Progressive Rugby League Book Club. This week, we are speaking to a Progressive Rugby League, well, a mortal in waiting. You may have heard of the Forbidden Game and the Struggle and the Daring. Yes, we are speaking to the author of both seminal rugby league books, Mike Rylance, and Big Al's with me. Hello, Big. Hello, folks. And let's welcome Mike. Hi, how are you going, Mike? I'm going very well. Thank you very much. Good to see you. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, why don't we start off? Obviously, you wrote The Forbidden Game almost 20 years ago now, and you could have really basked in the glory of this seminal book, having written such a a glorious historical account of the banning of French Rugby League, but you decided to complement it with the history of the rest of the French Rugby League up until today's day and age. Why did you do that? Um, Well, thanks for your kind
2: comments, first of all. it, It was pretty obvious why... The second book had to be done, really, because although I'd reached a point where um, the game was banned in 1940 and and talked about some of the consequences of that, it was clear that there were many questions still remaining to be answered about the post-war period. And first of all, I should say that uh, a complete history of the French game had never been written before anyway, so Mm. that needed doing. But there were also these questions that were nagging that I thought really we ought to get some answers to. And the main question, of course, why, after the game was so successful before the war and briefly after the war as well, why did it go into this slow decline Mm. that we see today? And if you want me to go into the conclusions that I reached now, I will do, (laughs) but there were clearly certain answers had been provided by other people without going into it in any great depth. And that was to do with the failure to take advantage of television and the fact that France were defeated in the final of the 1954 World Cup. And it turns out that, really, those two questions may have had a marginal influence, but um, there, was, there was a much bigger answer than that waiting to
1: be enunciated and you're right. We'll get to those sort of points throughout the, the discussion and, and what you talk about during the struggle and the daring. I thought, though, we might start off with maybe straddling a more your Forbidden Game book to start off with. Now, before we discuss the specifics of the current book, can we go back to the Forbidden Game and the dawning of Rugby League in France in the 1930s? So the success of Rugby League in France has always been intertwined with Rugby Union. What were the conditions that led to Rugby League's arrival?
2: Well we should see it in its context not just 1934 or in the two or three years that happened before then but also going right back to 1910 when the first uh, and when it was first suggested that, that French the French should adopt rugby league because it was regarded that the two the two ways of seeing the game the the, the British rugby league game and the French way of playing rugby mm. were very similar and also um, there was a the question of money in that the French were were not averse to persuading players to play for money, mm-hmm. as we saw in the 1920s, again, when the Australian tourists tried to uh, play an exhibition match in Paris, as we know, 1921-22, which um, was clamped down on. Um, and then again, uh, in the French Tribune domestic scene towards the end of the 1920s, when a little team called Quillons, uh, which is south of Carcassonne and had a population of about 2,500 at the time, uh, managed to get to the championship final and played Lesignon there, who of course still exists um, as a rugby league team now. But that was the blueprint for the future in that the, the Kion team was sponsored, underwritten in a sense, by Jean Bourrel, who was the uncle of Paul Barrière, who became the mm. chairman of, the French Rugby League Federation, and they assembled a fantastic team, which included Jean Gallier, who had such an instrumental, mm. in fact, primary role in the introduction of, of French Rugby League in 1934. Then, of course, the big thing was the fact that France was excluded from the international scene mm. by the british rugby union um and when we talk about the international board in rugby union terms we're not really talking about international board at all we're talking about the english rugby union Mm. helped by the by the scots who took a a similar attitude in that the principles of the amateur game came before anything else Mm. even before the ability to pass the ball kick it into touch or whatever if you were an amateur then you could play the game and if you weren't an amateur, then you were to be excluded.
3: That term, yeah. amateur, because it gets thrown around a lot across yeah. the whole book. Just yeah. for the purposes of our audience, mm-hmm. can we just, what's our definition of amateur? Or What was the, the, sorry, the rugby union's definition of amateur at the time?
2: It was that you should not receive money or anything in kind for your ability to play rugby. Mm. so in theory it meant that you should not be able to earn a living as a result of your prowess as a rugby player in other words if somebody suggested that you know you might like to take over this this cafe Mm. you know which will bring in customers because you are a famous uh, rugby player that would be a good idea Mm. that was not supposed to happen Mm. it did it was widespread in france of course Mm. but it it shouldn't have it shouldn't have happened but it wasn't just the amateur ethos either that the the British rugby unions were very much against the idea that crowds should misbehave in the way that they did in the south of France. And players as well on the field of play um, were thought not to show sufficient respect to the referee in particular and, and to each other as well. A fair enough point, I suppose. But I think excommunication from the international scene was was a harsh step mm. to take, even though the French had been been warned before.
1: So that left the door ajar for rugby league to begin. As you mentioned, Jean yeah. Gallier led the way there and, yeah. and it really expanded and, and thrived and grew in that, in that 1930s decade. Yeah. And then World War II happens and then two years later, all of a sudden, rugby league is banned. Yeah. Now, can you explain how on earth can this happen?
2: Well, you mentioned two years, but in mm. fact, within weeks and months of the Vichy government being set up in the summer... Of 1940, the game was effectively banned. The the start of the new season in October 1940 Mm. uh, played a couple of matches, I think, and then that was it. The ban the ban came in. Mm. So it was not 1941, as a lot of people think. That was when the the official uh, declaration was signed, but it happened back in October 1940. So the French suffered their worst ever military defeat at the hands of the Germans in that. Summer, uh, May, June 1940, the Germans took control but allowed the Vichy government to set up in Vichy to uh, administer what we might call the southern half of the, of the country. Mm-hmm. But it still had a certain amount of sovereignty, which meant that it could, to some extent, um, look after its own home affairs. And one of the things it did was to set up under the aegis of, of Jean Bourotre, the famous mm. French Davis, uh, Davis Cup tennis player and Wimbledon champion as well. He was in charge of this ministry of sport whose aim really was to make French youth a whole lot fitter than they used to be in the hope that they might not lose another world war against (laughs) germany that was at the back of his mind anyway and so a lot of money was put into it even though it was wartime and it had great success Uh, more people took up sport at that period than had ever been known before Mm. But there were, were, of course, one or two exceptions. And, and Rugby League suffered very badly, as we know, because people in charge there took advantage of the opportunity to get rid of this dangerous rival by saying that all athletes must be amateur. Mm. Rugby League players are not amateur. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't professional either, mm. but they, they were allowed to receive money for playing, and that was the pretext that was used to get rid of the game, mm-hmm. even though we know that, that really the reasons for getting rid of the game were far more self seeking than that
3: this uh, almost obsession with the, the cleanliness of character if you 're an, an amateur is that a decidedly French notion or is that was that just invented by um, by the ministry of sport at the time where did, Where did that idea come from
2: well the Vichy Government was a rather backward looking regime and it had many ideals, most of which have long since been abandoned. They're not really 20th century ideals at all. But Borotra himself had been brought up in the English home counties mm. and believed very much in the amateur ethos. Mm-hmm. It was a public school idea that had been handed down to him, but also, uh, if you remember Baron Pierre de Coubertin, the the originator of the olympic games had had similar ideals and it, and it they all stemmed from britain actually mm. whose notion of sporting ethics
1: were widespread and
2: not not just uh, across british colonies but but in france as well
1: mm. yeah so the banning of rugby league it really was some rugby union types with friends in high places and exactly. an element of breathtaking opportunism. Is that how... Basically Absolutely,
2: yeah, yeah. Breathtaking opportunism is, is uh, yeah. the right phrase to use there. Absolutely.
1: Now, what do you think was the, the major lasting legacy of the banning of rugby league? Obviously, it wasn't able to be played in French schools for decades and decades afterwards. They weren't even allowed to call the game rugby for decades and decades as well. What do you think is the, the major lasting legacy?
2: Well you you've already mentioned the fact that it wasn't able to be played in schools that that was very important but the on the the other side of the coin is that rugby union was mm. uh, enforced in on the school curriculum alongside other team sports which have since flourished in in France in fact It's been pointed out that those sports are the ones in which France has won international competition.
3: So I'm assuming one of them is soccer slash football. Can you just list a couple of other
2: ones? The strange one, um, which had not really been played in, in France before, was volleyball. Uh, sorry handball volleyball was was one of those sports but handball was as well Mm. which is a german sport and had only ever been played in france in alsace alsace lorraine which is a neighboring part of of germany but they but the french became handball Mm. uh, champions and it just shows that if you if you put sports on the national curriculum what an amazing effect That has for future generations so we've got we've got volleyball we've got rugby we've got handball we've got basketball
3: so rugby league is now no longer banned from the curriculum however is it enforced in the curriculum is it part of the curriculum or is it just okay to be included if a teacher decides that he wants to
2: that's more or less it yeah yeah yeah. so yes it can now be played in schools as it has been played in little pockets here and there Mm -hmm. over the years anyway but it's not enforced as part of the national curriculum mm. no
3: the rugby, union is... rugby union is still there yeah, yeah
2: yeah and more importantly than that it's only in recent years that rugby league has been allowed onto PE teachers curriculums as right. well um, so, and in order to be able to teach any sport in a French school you've got to go through the necessary uh, mm. the necessary education yourself to be able to teach it
1: so junior rugby league in France was really just kept alive by the clubs yeah. in the in the south of France, basically. Yeah.
2: But that's that's a French tradition as well, mm. actually. Both in league and union, mm-hmm. the so-called école de rugby, where you have teams of kids from five, six, seven, and so on. I guess similar to Australia, mm. um, it is a major way of of bringing kids into the game. But in schools, you've got a captive audience. Mm. You know
1: that's that's the big difference. Okay, well, we talk about the effect of the banning a bit more later on, perhaps, but let's skip ahead to the 1950s. And this is a a glorious era for French rugby league and two or three really successful tours of Australia. This is coming only within a decade or so after the banning of rugby league. Before we get to the details of the tour, Mike, how on earth did they come back so quickly and so emphatically?
2: Well... The major fact is that they came together a a large number of very talented players Mm. after that war period who were more than happy to get their boots on again Mm. after uh, rugby league boots, that's to say, after what they'd gone through during the war. And it was a very talented generation. Of course, virtually all of them came from Rugby Union Mm. because that was the only game that you could play. There were one or two who had played rugby league before the war who were still in, in, in the team uh, in, when it came back. But essentially that, that 50s generation came from Rugby Union with, with a few exceptions. But yeah, they were just an amazingly talented bunch of players. They, they came out of the occupation. I think it was Poncinet who said, we were just happy to be able to play the game again. Mm. We, were, we, we were committed because of what we'd gone through. Mm. And they adapted very quickly mm. from, from Union to, to League.
1: Now let's talk about the 1951 tour. This is probably the the gem in France rugby league crown a time where hundreds of thousands of Australian people came to watch this French team and they shocked the Australian nation by taking the series 2-1. Uh, what was so special about that tour?
2: Well first of all they were given very little chance of success. It mm. was It was thought that it might well turn out to be a financial disaster which it wasn't the opposite was true Mm. they weren't sure either whether Aussie crowds would really be interested in watching a French team again the opposite turned out to be true the big success of the tour uh, was based on the fact that the touring party were kept together for so many weeks reached a level of fitness that touring teams used to do in the past through playing together and Mm. and so on but they were given free reign to express their individual abilities that's that's what thrilled the crowds. Mm. and when we talk about the impact that they made um, you can probably look at certain areas first of all the speed at which they played Mm. not just speed of foot but speed of passing as well their attacking style, their counter-attacking style, mm. the fact that the forwards um, were almost able to play like backs, the very thing which Jean Gallier back in 1933 had seen in the Australians when they played the exhibition match mm. against England in Paris on December 31st, 1933. Now the wheels appear to have turned full circle and it was the French who were giving the, the Aussies the lesson mm. within less than 20 years of that first game ever being played there are There are um obviously stars who are associated with that team, but it's wrong really to single out individuals because mm. there were so many great players spread throughout the fifty one team and again in fifty five mm. though to a lesser extent
1: Now you talk about the style of play that the the French employed, and I suppose they became famous for that style from the fifties and I suppose since people talk about it the French style of play. And in your books, people are, are taking note of how the, the style of play is, is getting better or worse or more attractive or less attractive. Do you, is that still part of the conversation in French rugby league circles, the importance of, of, you know, entertaining?
2: It is very much so, yeah. You've only to go to a Catalan Dragons game, and if they start playing a typical English predictable Super mm. League style, as sometimes happens, then the crowd don't get. are not really too happy about mm. it they perhaps have got used to the idea that in order to win games you sometimes can't throw the ball around as much as you would like to see but Mm -hmm. but yeah they do still like to see spectacular rugby league and that's its raison d'etre after all Mm -hmm. um that to entertain the crowds was the business of rugby league right Mm -hmm. from the start Mm -hmm. and has remained so till this day
1: now we go to 1955 so 1951 france shock australia and the rugby league world by taking the series two one yeah. they then compete in 1954 in the world cup final and they probably should have won that final against england they come back to australia in 1955 with a very different team mm. but once again they do the business yeah absolutely but
2: it was pretty much against the odds yet again but in mm. a different way in that they got beaten in the first test and in the second test they were 28 16 down at brisbane mm. with less than 20 minutes left to play and then, with, I suppose you'd call it typical French counter-attacking style, they had Jean Dopp, who is regarded as sort of incarnation of the uh, French style of play, usually at scrum half, but he was playing full-back mm-hmm. on that occasion. counter-attacked three times. It led to three tries in the, in the final uh, 15 minutes or so. Brought the score to 29-28. They hung on for five minutes and managed to win that game and then the third test again to win the series 2-1 again mm. against all the odds. And although the Aussies had started to learn some of the lessons of the 51 tour, there was still some way to go because they were still relying to some extent on that kind of power play. That, but it tended to be a bit a bit heavy, a little bit predictable compared to the, the lightness of touch of the, of mm. the French.
1: Yeah, I, remember, I can't remember who spoke of the French style, but he spoke about in defence you need order and yeah. in attack you need disorder. That's
2: right. It was Jacques Merquet, yeah, actually, right. who I saw only two weeks ago. You might be interested oh, that to right? know. Yeah, yeah he's, the, he's the one remaining person left from that French team of 1951. Wow. Yep. that's right. You need, you need to have somebody in your side capable of creating disorder mm. in the opposition defence. And that's, that's what the French yeah. did.
1: Now, speaking of people who could create disorder, I want to now talk about some of the, the main characters and the key characters of French rugby league history and especially that period. Mm. And someone who could create disorder in opposition defences was Puyolbeur. Can yeah. you tell us about him? He's a, a character that even in Australian rugby league circles, people would sort of recognise the name even if they didn't understand what he was about. But he was uh, quite a character and probably like the, a superstar of 50s rugby league. He was a superstar, yeah. He was named
2: French Sportsman of the Year at one mm. point, which is highly unusual and never been achieved since by a rugby league player. But it wasn't just his style of play, although that was unusual enough, you know, counter attacking from full-back. Mm. There was a lot of kicking to full-backs going on at that time, as there is now, I suppose. But he would sort of nonchalantly collect the ball... Mm-hmm sidestep whoever it was he was chasing and hair off downfield you know he his style of kicking was was nothing short of amazing you know place the ball turn his back on it (laughs) and then stroll up and boot it between the goal posts from 50 yards or whatever you know so and the fact that he liked to smoke a lot didn't really like training. It all made made up part of the character that was Puy Gobert. Mm. You know, he wasn't a typical athlete in mm. any in any sense. But on that fifty one tour, he admitted it himself. He was the fittest he'd ever been, mm. and that also partly explains his success. I think if only he'd kept a little bit fitter, a little bit longer maybe france would have won the 1954 <laughs> world cup final no there were other factors in play there but
1: you know well that that is a theory that comes up in the book about the 1954 final and that it seemed like great britain had a plan to to kick and make we run around and, he, and they figured he wasn't fit enough to handle it
2: yeah because that was three years later on and mm. he'd already started to put on a bit of weight around the around the girth then mm. yeah there was there was more to it than that um for one thing, the rule, the play the ball rule, didn't really help the French, and they felt that Great Britain were were offside. I'm not making excuses here. This mm. is what they said: mm. it was the one yard rule that would play the ball. I mean, imagine that we have ten yards, yeah. Now. And they weren't really used to that from the. I mean, in fact, they they complained about it quite a lot. Mm. So there was that. There was the fact that they'd had a very bruising game against Australia on the Thursday before, whereas Great Britain had had a fairly simple mm. win against New Zealand. Mm. To taken a lot out of them and also their pack was massively disrupted particularly the back three mm. so you had one player in particular making his international debut uh, in the back row where he would never played before and things just fell awkwardly for them mm. sad to say if they had won then that would have created
1: a massive new story
2: but that alone would not have guaranteed
1: French rugby league's future mm. Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to see the reaction there because after the fifty-one tour, they had a, a ticket tape parade yeah. in Marseille to hundreds mm. of thousands of people. Is that right?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, they did. They arrived back by by boat in the in the old port in Marseille, and then by motor launch after that. <laughs> and Paul Barrière, with his great sense of showmanship, arranged that there should be twenty odd convertible Peugeot. <laughs> with the name of each player on the front wow. and they should each stand up while being driven through the crowd each with his own little car you know, mm-hmm. waving to the crowd about 10 deep ticker tape all the rest of it—it it was just something that hasn't been seen, been seen it before. Is, or it's since.
1: quite mind-boggling to comprehend that happening with French rugby league. Yeah. And you mentioned Paul Barrier, who is quite an influential figure in that period of yeah. the game as an official. Mm. How important was he to that sort of revival of French rugby league in the in the forties and early fifties? Well,
2: he was—he was crucial. I mean, he he came out of the out of the occupation yeah. as a member of the resistance, as we know. He had a, a fighting spirit. and yeah. He didn't like to see. Even though he had no rugby league background to speak of, he didn't like to see the game downtrodden as it has been. In fact, very much much the opposite of that. Mm. But his initiatives, the World Cup, for example, the 51 Tour, we tend to take such things for granted now. Mm. But if you think of when it happened, those were fantastic innovation. And Um, huge risks. Huge risks too, yeah. Particularly the Tour, which was underwritten Mm. by by the French, and the World Cup as well, for that matter, because the other, particularly the Aussies and New Zealanders, for that matter, weren't really that keen. Mm. Nor were Great Britain, having just come back from a tour of Australia as well. Mm. It was the French who were the driving force in that, and it was he who provided the, the trophy. But I should also mention that his vice-president, Claude Devernois, was almost as important. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe Paul Berrier had the ideas, but Devernois saw to it that those ideas could be carried through mm-hmm. with his financial backing. He was a, a wealthy man, and not, not just on the international scene, but the, the domestic scene as well owed an awful lot to mm. him.
1: So just then we were talking about uh, Puyo Burt and Paul Bayet, two yeah. key influential figures. Would you say they are the the most uh, influential figures in french rugby league in its history or yeah. you know, are there a few others that we should no be i would
2: i would say that i yeah. think those two stand out head and shoulders um above any other i suppose it was a time to make innovation mm. uh, unlike in in further periods they had the players to do it rugby union was on the back foot at the time as well mm. let's not forget although it, it too came back in the in the in the mid 50s to mm. to be more of a rival than it had been before but yeah undoubtedly those two were were the greatest
1: now we go through the 60s and we sort of start to see a slow decline in the the quality of french rugby league and you go into the 70s as well there there are some good performances and and a couple of series wins and they're still able to upset the top teams and of course in the late 70s they beat australia again in 1978 in france yeah but then the the decline is is undoubted at that point so we talk about lots of things that has happened to french rugby league but unfortunately there are things that french rugby league has done to itself as well we get to the 1980s the early 1980s yeah and the the violence that uh beset the game and there was one really i suppose well embarrassing grand final of the french elite one competition that really set rugby league back quite a way
2: yeah that's right the 81 final um Mm -hmm. was a disgrace really but we also tend to forget how violent the game was right. in all rugby league playing countries at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think it was down to Australia, really, who started introducing long, long bans that mm-hmm. people, the players, started to get the message mm-hmm. and realised that they kind of hooligan behaviour on the field was, was not to be tolerated anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, France had not reached that point, and it took a long time for them to, to realise mm-hmm. it. But that 81 final was a combination of of events really in that Tres Catalan were involved against, against Villeneuve. Uh, Tres Catalan can't be singled out for their part in the, in, in the disruption to the final, but uh, they were a team that were known for their, their knuckling of the, of the opposition, you know, and, if you watch the film of it, you, it's clear from the start that, you know, there were late tackles and all kinds of stuff going in right from the start. Players flattened off the ball long after the ball had gone and all that kind of stuff, you know. It was pretty disgraceful, really. And it was also not known whether that final would, would actually go ahead because of what, have, what had happened in a cup semi-final just the, the week before where it was threatened that two Tres Catalan players would not play in the championship final. Um, because of their behaviour in the, that previous game, mm. and then when it was seen by the crowd that they had been, uh, the federation had backtracked and uh, allowed them to play. Then all hell
1: let loose. Basically, mm. um, the game only lasted a few minutes. In the yeah, end, didn't about it? five or six minutes. Yeah, that's all. And that game was televised on yeah. on French television, right? It was.
2: It was. Yeah. And there were lots of follow ups to it. Of course, you know how. Yeah terrible state of a french port and 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 rugby league in particular Mm -hmm. and you know how does it get to this point so on and so forth yeah rugby league really suffered a lot from that and it's not true to say that the game didn't appear on tv anymore after that because Mm -hmm. it did Mm -hmm. but there was no doubt that the violence and, and rugby league were seen by by the general public as going hand in hand
1: unfortunately And how long did that take? How long did that image take to get over? Is it still part of the image for many French people?
2: No, I don't think it is actually. um, Because at national level, when the French won at Headingley in in the early 90s, Mm. by that stage, the coaching team had already realized that violence was not to be tolerated. Mm -hmm. Uh, The players quickly got the message, and it's been pretty much eradicated from Mm. the game. No, I mean it does still happen in lower leagues you know, but generally speaking it's, um, it's nothing like
1: what it used to be now You talk about the 1980s and once again the, the performance of the French national team they continue to struggle but they have the odd good performance and you mentioned I think it was 1990 the last time they beat a, a top tier nation when they beat Great Britain but they're continuing to struggle and then in the mid 90s there's an attempt at revitalising the French game through a summer competition led by a former rugby union figure. So I'm just bringing this up because what I noticed from reading your book is that the struggles of French rugby league, it's not through a lack of trying things, is it? So this is a a period of the game in the mid-90s where the French were were thinking, how are we going to get our game out of the mire? And they come up with the concept of of a summer league.
2: Yeah, it was not so much the the status quo of French rugby league that came up with that idea but Jacques Fourou who really um, become disenchanted with rugby union and they with him Mm -hmm. who defected it was said at the time to to rugby league and and it was it was his baby basically that game the game should be taken to mainly resorts in the summer Mm. entrance should be free there'll be rock music to bring the crowds in, it's what we kind of take for granted or have taken for granted now. But the concept was was entirely new at the time. Mm. And then of course when Paris Saint Germain came along in, in ninety six, that type of competition wasn't needed any longer because we already had a high profile so called summer competition mm. in you know, Super League. In Super
1: League, that's right. Yeah. So it just fell by the wayside?
2: Yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah I'm, on
3: that, it's it's tempting. We're all, we all we uh, would love to see a strong French uh, presence, yeah. and it's really tempting to just talk in hypotheticals. But do you think had that summer competition kicked in, might have it, it might have given a like breathed some life back into the sport?
2: It's hard to say, really, because for one thing, as I said, entry was free. Mm. So there must come a point where you start to charge people. Mm. Would they have paid um, when they're on holiday? Maybe, may, mm. maybe not, but not in such great numbers. I don't think mm. that was a big problem with Paris Saint Germain that that entry to all intents and purposes was was free, and therefore they had no no revenue. You know, so it wasn't really a great business plan. Mm. I don't think personally. Maybe with the benefit of hindsight, although some people suggested at the time, if Paris Saint Germain, despite all the cachet of the name, playing in the capital, if that team had played in Toulouse, mm. then that team might still be operating in. Super League now you know instead of having to go back to to asking a French team if they want to join Super League again Mm. 10 years down the line you know with Pepinho and then now with Toulouse again Mm. maybe that 10-year hiatus could have been avoided
1: you know. Now let's talk about the the strength of French Rugby League as it is today so it's I suppose it's kind of difficult to judge the the national team continues to to struggle against the top-tier nations, although it has some some decent results against the mid-tier nations. Obviously, Catalan are doing very well. Toulouse are, are coming up. But then again, the Elite One competition is struggling uh, as a result. So how would you judge the strength of French Rugby League as it stands? Do you think it's on the up or is it on the decline?
2: It's really a difficult question mm. um, because on the one hand, as you say, you've got the Catalan Dragons, completely professional, Toulouse getting there and the domestic competition kind of kind of semi professional, but really not at the same level at all. Mm. And because crowds and the general interest of the public doesn't gravitate towards that Elite One competition anymore, because they've got the Catalans and Toulouse Mm. to watch instead. Or Super League on TV, the people in charge of clubs are finding it really, really difficult to attract an audience. So the Federation comes up with different ideas about maybe starting a regional competition, <laughs> you know, quite unaware of the fact that it seems that that has already been tried at mm-hmm. least once before, if not several times. But what they really have to focus on is the importance of each of those Elite One teams within its own community mm. and make it mean something to the people of Carcassonne or Saint Gaudens or Villeneuve mm. or wherever they are. And, and and for that competition to be seen as producing players for those two teams that we mentioned mm. before, I don't really see any other way mm. forward for the for the French domestic game.
1: And I suppose the success of Catalan and, to a lesser extent, Toulouse has that had an effect on junior numbers in French rugby league. How are the junior numbers compare to how they were, say, ten years ago?
2: That is possibly the most difficult question that mm. you've asked this afternoon, because there are no stats to back it up. Oh, really? Well, if you ask the federation that question, they will probably tell you how many players there are playing the game at the moment. Mm. They used to say there were forty thousand playing. But that included kids who were authorized to play for a taste a day or whatever, right. you know, so you can more or less. Grain of salt. Yeah. Of those who play regularly at open age, it's probably somewhere between five and ten thousand, which right. is not really that many. Marc Pallonc recently did an interview in which he said that there were, I think, 154 clubs operating in France at the moment. Mm-hmm. But simply by adding up those those teams in senior competitions, we know that there are only about 55 senior teams. Mm. All the rest are junior teams, important as they are. Mm. But sometimes you get a misleading impression from Mm. numbers. And again, we were talking before about the championship final this year, Mm. uh, which had an estimated crowd of 3,000 how do you run a competition mm. where you have an estimated crowd mm. you know people want to know mm. how many people paid at the turnstiles to watch this game you know yeah. so that they can, can compare with what has gone before you know are we making progress or are we not mm. oh well we don't really know we don't have the answer to that question which is why it's so difficult mm. to to get any proper answer about whether the game is progressing mm. or whether it's not you have to rely on anecdotal evidence, and the anecdotal evidence is that, no, the game is not really making much progress, Right. in spite of the fact that we've got the Catalan Dragons and Toulouse. Okay, they've got their centres of excellence, and they're bringing kids through, which is great to see, mm-hmm. but beyond those areas, are we making a lot of progress? Well, perhaps not.
1: Now, this might be another question that's very difficult to answer, but... We know that France last beat a top-tier rugby league nation in 1990. It's about 30 years ago. Do you think they will beat another top-tier nation within the next 30 years?
2: That very much depends on certain factors. One, of course, is the throughput of players Mm. from the junior leagues, whether they finally get that sorted out or not, in order to increase the size of the pool that they have to choose from. It also depends on whether they have more than one team operating at full-time professional level. It also depends on the relative strength of the the, the major rugby league playing nations, mm. you know. And we can't just rely on thinking of uh, Great Britain, Australia, New Zealand when you've got other teams like Tonga coming through, mm. you know. The signs are at the moment that, uh, as they were 20 years ago, that the French might get out-muscled by one of these teams like Tonga or Samoa, mm. you know. Fiji and so on. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so... I mean, I would like, I would like to think so. It's is is <laughs> the <laughs> possible
1: answer. That Fingers I mean, crossed yeah. is the answer. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Now, obviously, the banning of rugby league still casts a heavy shadow over French rugby league, even to this day. Do you think that's a good thing in that the French rugby league community can sort of band together and rally around that? Or is it to its detriment that it focuses too much on that?
2: A lot of people... Have said in recent years that the game has tended to look to the past too much and and see itself as a, a victim of what happened in 1940. Mm. So yeah, I fully sympathise with with that view that yeah we do we do need to put that uh, behind us. And yet the effect of 1940 has been considerable and mm. has determined the way that French rugby league has moved forward in the intervening mm. seventy, eighty years or so. So yeah, we, we shouldn't we shouldn't hang our heads and say, you know, if only it hadn't happened, we you know, we've got to find a way through this. Mm. Um, but with rugby union, really oh, I shouldn't say rampant, but it but it is in comparison. You know, the French the France rugby union team is no great shakes by any means at the moment. But mm. it has all the infrastructure, it's got all the money behind it, and it's very hard to compete against that. Mm. And all of that goes back to those war years. Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is very tempting to play the what if game, isn't it? So yeah. I often think what if uh, the banning never occurred and French rugby league continued to grow? It wouldn't only be better for a rugby league point of view in France, but imagine what it would have meant for the international game, which oh, has really oh, yeah. been stagnant. We should
3: probably, we should probably stop and <laughs> hold because we could spend all day
2: thinking
1: about what... But, I mean, a strong France might have opened up Europe and who knows, because, you know, over the last 20 or 30 years, International Rugby League has struggled. It's starting to grow again. Mm. But, you know, for me, I wonder what if what that would have meant for international rugby league, not just French rugby
3: league. Well, so yeah. Before you answer it, so I remember I wrote something down that um out of the struggle and the daring that really stood out to me. It was when um, France hosted the international rugby league board in Turin and there, t- there was talk, nothing came of it, but talk of expansion to the USA and Spain in that meeting as well. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, just to go off your point there, mm. Jono, that, I mean, again, it's, it's tempting to play uh, what if, but mm. they were yeah. talking about it then.
2: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, Italy is, a, is a, a good case in point, really. Mm. I mean, there is no reason why, if France Rugby League had been really up there amongst the best, why the Italians wouldn't mm. have fallen in mm. instead of constantly getting whooped in the Six Nations competition, mm. as they as they do. But, you know, they have reached that level mm. and they could have reached something like that in rugby league who knows my own father went coaching in italy in really? the late 50s yeah when there was a a group of clubs really interested in taking the game forward but of course it all comes down to money in the end and they didn't really have the the backing mm. to see it through but yeah, the potential was there. But how many times have we seen this in rugby league? Well, maybe not in Australian rugby league, but, you know, in, in European rugby league, how many times have we seen projects fail because uh, the backing, financial or otherwise, wasn't there? Have
3: we seen it in Australian rugby league as well?
2: In <laughs> oh, that's okay. <laughs> well, in a sense, that's gratifying to note. But you know. This this might
3: sound like a really obvious question. So after the we've spoken about the banning, did anybody question the banning of the game or fight to or fight the banning
2: yeah but a compromise had to be reached and that was done in 47 48 49 so that the game could be officially recognized rugby union authorities put pressure on the uh, national olympic committee or the equivalent of it so that the term rugby league could no longer be used mm. uh, and for a long long time for decades, in fact, it laboured on under the the title of Jeux which simply means thirteen side game. Mm. So I think the idea of fighting back in terms of reparation, let's say, mm. was out of the question. Right. Uh, because people simply wanted to get on with the business of playing and administering the game. And they probably knew as well that um, they would be fighting a losing battle mm. because mm-hmm. uh, bureaucracy was, was on Rugby Union's side, it was all stacked against Rugby League, you know.
1: Now, Mike, the relations with the Rugby Union have long been testy and difficult, and we noted on our tour the different approaches from Catalan and Toulouse-Olympique. Catalan more uh, a fiery approach to dealing with their peers in Rugby Union, Toulouse looking more to to get along with their their peers in the Rugby Union and their city. How important do you think is a working relationship with the Rugby Union to the future of French Rugby League? I don't
2: think it matters all that much, actually. You're right about the difference, and it's perceptive of you to say so, but, but in Perpignan, it's always been the case that people have been at each other's throats in, in rugby terms, mm. you know, and when players cross codes, that has caused problems as well, as mm. happened in the 80s and so on. Toulouse, um, well, Stade Toulousain recognised, like you, Sappar in Perpignan, I suppose, as one of the greatest uh, rugby union outfits but there is because it's a bigger city and um, because there's greater investment perhaps on both sides and they're not, all, they're not both scrapping over the same mm. amount of money maybe there's a, a more open attitude on both sides there and, and there certainly seem to be. Carlos Zaldu- Zalduendo pre- previous federation president mm. and of the Toulouse Olympic Club always said that there were good relations between himself and Stade Toulouse mm. A lot of people didn't totally believe that, but it, it is becoming the case now. If, as expected, those two clubs, Olympique and Stade Lausanne, start to ground share as mm. of next season, so is it important to work with Rugby Union in the future? I can't really see what the benefits would be, apart from at a local level, you know, in terms of ground share or, mm. or whatever. Um, I don't think we can hold out too great hopes at any higher level than that.
1: Now, Mike, we're getting to the, towards the end of the, our chat, and it's been fascinating. But before we finish, I've got a, a couple of more questions for you. One of them is, why do you love French Rugby League?
2: Well, it goes back a long way. First of all, I mentioned my father coaching in Italy, but he, he played in France as well back in the late 40s and, and 50s and mentioned a few things about it. I suppose that had a bit of an effect. Also, I spent much of my professional life teaching French anyway. Mm. So if you put Rugby League and France together, then you come up with the the obvious answer, you know. <laughs> and also, when, when I was first started writing about Rugby League, which goes back quite a long time now, there was a dearth of people able to speak or read or translate French, and stuff kind of found its way to me. And so I've found myself in that niche, and, uh, you know, I've never really come out of it, to be mm. honest. But But it is absolutely fascinating. The fact that, you know a country with such a great culture and civilization as France takes to its heart, or at least part of it does, the game that we love here in mm. the north of England and you do in Australia and people do in New Zealand as well. Well, that's, that's, it's like a dream, really, because <laughs> you, know, you see the game being played in, in the south of France and that's got nothing to do with you going to watch what happens at oddsall for example Um, you know the 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 two scenarios couldn't be more different yeah and yet it happens you know it's it's amazing to see
1: so you've written the forbidden game and now the struggle and the daring two real really seminal books for rugby league fans and fans of rugby league history can you tell us what it took to get these books together it seems like the most immense undertaking of rugby league research
2: well it wasn't easy let's let's say that um because of the lack of records and statistics and anything, really, that we take for granted here. I mean, I I don't know about in Australia, but in England, there used to be um, an amateur outfit called the Record Keepers Club Mm. who kept statistics on every single player who ever played the game, not Mm. to mention clubs. Nothing like that exists in France. You couldn't even get the playing record of Jean Gallier if you wanted. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know how many tries he scored during his career, for example. Mm. So it's at, at that level, it, it is really very difficult. And there are, there's very, very little else that you can rely on apart from going to primary sources, which is to say newspapers in archives and the people who saw that period for their oral mm. evidence. Apart from the great Andre Passamar's encyclopedia and Louis Bonnery's book on Rugby League, Mm. there's very little else in in book form that you would look
1: for. So how long did it take to put these books together?
2: Well, The Forbidden Game, considering that I was teaching full-time, it probably took me about, I don't know, six, seven, eight years, something like that, all told. Struggle and the Daring probably took a little bit less, but still just heaps of research, you know, Mm. and, and... uh, newspaper offices and public libraries and stuff like that, and going around France in holidays with a tape recorder, <laughs> you, know, you know, the idea, yeah, which made holidays uh, really interesting for one thing, yeah. you know, not that they wouldn't have been otherwise, but you know, it was it was a great thing to to be able to do, and to be able to say that you know that the French rugby league, for better or worse, has been has been written and the people hopefully will be able to find some of the answers to those questions that I mentioned before.
1: Well, Mike, you've done us a great service, and we thank you for all the work you've done, all the years of dedication you've put into producing these books. They're outstanding pieces of work, and we've enjoyed them thoroughly. So educational and so entertaining, you really feel like you are right there in the villages of southern France, in the 50s, in the 60s, and as, as time has moved on. So thank you very much for writing those books. Thank you very much for welcoming us into your home and talking to us about the books. So uh, thanks so much, Mike. Well, thank you both. I mean, it's been a great pleasure. The what pleasure's
2: been all mine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thanks, Mike.